Well, good morning, everybody. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Sam. I'm the high school pastor here at Friendship, and it's my pleasure this morning to actually get to kick off a brand new series called Pictures of the Church, where we're going to be looking at different pictures or different ways uh, throughout the scriptures that we see the church, us, those who are followers of Christ, how we relate with God. And so today, I get to do what is my favorite picture of the church, and that is the picture of the bride, that we, the church, are the bride of Christ. And so I want to show you first a picture of my bride. Uh, There's me and Amy on our wedding day um, a couple of years ago. We look pretty good, I think. Anyway, um, even before this, and I would say that through marriage, I've gotten to have a deeper understanding of this picture of a bride and what this really means. But even before my wedding day, I would say that this picture of the bride of Christ has really helped me to understand both my relationship with Christ and how to live day to day as a Christian. Uh, God has used this picture to really show me a lot of his heart for me and also what my heart for him and how I can express that. And so that's my hope today is to do that um, and to go into God's word together. And so if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Ephesians 5. We're going to be going through a couple different passages throughout Scripture, but this is kind of the main passage that we want to look at today. So if you have a Bible um, that might be on your phone, that might be a physical one, either way, open up to Ephesians 5. We're going to be in 22 through 33. Um, And as you're opening up there, I just want to pray. Uh, So Heavenly Father, I just ask right now that you would just speak through me. God, that you would use your word to just open our eyes to the truth of who you are and who we are in light of that. Help us to understand a little bit more of this relationship that we have with you through this picture that you give us of the bride and bridegroom of the Christ and his church. Lord, we love you so much, and I pray that you would just use me now in that capacity. Amen. All right, so let's start by reading Ephesians 5, Starting at verse 22, I want to just go through the whole passage. We'll go back through it uh, throughout the rest of the morning, but I want to start by just reading the whole passage. So let's do that. Starting at verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body for which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so this passage, 
I love this passage. It is a beautiful passage, and usually we use this when we're talking to husbands and wives and how they relate to one another. In fact, this is the passage that Amy and I used at our wedding. Uh, And so it's a great passage for that. But it's also a passage that shows us how Christ relates to us and how we relate to him within this picture of this marriage covenant that we've entered into as believers. And so before I go into this passage, I want to start with one problem that I see as a church that we, are, that we commonly fall into, and that is that we're sinful, and that leads us into unfaithfulness. Uh, think about at any wedding you've been to, most of the time, there's vows that say things like, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or worse, right? And the, the couple stands and they say, I do, so that for a lifetime, they are saying, I commit that no matter what, I'm with you. That at the core of any wedding, any marriage, you're going to have this commitment, this covenant that you have together. And if you think about it, that's how a lot of, well, that's how our relationship with Jesus starts too. That once we come to this place where we're willing to turn from our sin and say, Jesus, I'm yours forever. I I repent from my sin and I want you to be the Lord of my life. I I am yours for not just this lifetime, but for eternity. That, That is this commitment that we are making with Jesus. The in sickness and in health, richer, poor, better, worse, Jesus, I'm yours. That's the commitment that we're making. And yet, we are unfaithful. I I think of the song, O Come uh, Come Thou Fount, where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That that we as people, we're we're prone to wander, we're we're prone to, to wander off. That we say this commitment to Jesus, yes, I'm all in, and yet there's things that tug at our heart, there's sins that pull us away, and we start to wander off after other things. And it might be our spouse or our kids or for if you're in high school or junior high, maybe it's schoolwork and your grades, maybe it's your job. Whatever it is, there's things that we start to prioritize before God. We start to make idols out of, we start to make priorities out of other things and our hearts start to wander from this God that we love. And so I want to look at two Old Testament passages that kind of speak to this wandering of our heart. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. I want to skip a few verses and come to the end of the section at verse 11. It says, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all, but my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. 
They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So as we see in this passage, this image of marriage is not new to Ephesians 5. We see it throughout the Old Testament. God, with his people, he talks about this marriage covenant that we have with him. And you notice the beginning of the passage, he goes, I remember how you followed me. He's talking to the people of Israel, how you followed me through the wilderness. Where I went, you followed. You loved me. We had this love relationship. You trusted me. And then verse 5 comes, and he says, and when I read this, I just hear the heart of God breaking. He says, what fault did you find in me that you wandered, that you strayed? God's like, what did I do wrong? Why would you choose these other gods? Why would you choose yourself? Why would you go away from me? And then he uses this example of this living water, a picture, just this flowing, beautiful, pure stream that you're able to get this water and it gives you life. And instead, you leave that and you go and you dig a hole and you try to fill it with water and go, this is going to give me life better than that. And that's, that's the example that God goes, he says, why? Why would you leave? Like, I love you. you. Remember how you followed me and loved me? Remember that relationship? And then you chose that over me? What nation has ever changed its gods? And yet they're not even gods at all. The, the, there's people who are committed and devoted to to false gods that don't even exist, and yet the people who know the living God are choosing to go astray. And I think that this speaks to a lot of us, too, that we are prone to stray, to to, to move towards other things. In a lot of marriage ceremonies, we say a line that's something like, forsaking all others for this person. And yet, with our relationship with God, we say that, and then we find ourselves choosing others. Which brings me to the second passage I want to look at, which, well, technically the whole book of Hosea. Um, I would, if I had time, just read the whole book of Hosea Hosea with you. So I'm just going to encourage you on your own sometime to read this book, because there's a, a ton there. But what I want to talk about is the main point of the book. In Hosea, Hosea is the prophet, and his wife there is Gomer. In Hosea, God tells him, Hosea, go and marry a promiscuous woman. And so he does. He marries this woman, and what she ends up doing is leaving him for a bunch of other guys. And so she runs off, and she's out with these other guys, and she gets to the point where she's actually enslaved. And God goes to Hosea and says, Go, find your wife, Buy her back out of slavery. Bring her home and love her again. And the reason God calls Hosea to do this is to show a picture of his love for us, his love for his people. A people who have entered into this marriage relationship and yet were unfaithful and started choosing all these other gods, all these other sins over God. And yet we have a faithful husband who comes and he buys us back, he loves us back, and brings us back into relationship with him. Isn't that beautiful? The kind of God we serve? And so 
Hosea is this beautiful picture, but it also points to our hearts and our tendency to move away. And it was in reading Hosea for the first time, back when I was in high school, that it changed my perspective of my sin. See, before that, I kind of saw sin as just something that, you know, when I sin, God has this law, and when I sin, it's me breaking that law, and God doesn't like that, but he loves me, and so he forgives me. And so there's this understanding that, yeah, it's, it, it breaks that law, and God doesn't like it, but then God will forgive me, and it'll be okay. But when I read Hosea, I started to realize something. I've entered into a love relationship with God, and my sin is not just some arbitrary breaking of some rule, but it's actually breaking in this relationship that I, this commitment that I've made with God. God makes this equation. He connects idolatry, choosing another God over him, with adultery, breaking in this covenant relationship. And for the first time, I started to understand how my sin breaks the heart of God. That I am not just doing something wrong, but I am wandering from my love, from the one I've made a commitment to. And so before we can dive into all the ways that we see how the church and Christ interact, I just want to call our attention and ask you, have you been faithful? Or right now, are you in the midst of wandering? Regardless of where you are, even if you have wandered off and you are chasing after other idols and gods and things that are less and are worthless, know that you have a beautiful, wonderful Savior, a husband who wants to love you and bring you back into relationship with him. You don't have to be gone for good. And I hope that for someone here, that they will return to him. Repent from your sin and come back to him. Because Jesus wants a full, beautiful love relationship with you. So with that, I want to, I want to turn ourselves back to Ephesians 5 and look a little bit at this relationship of how Jesus loves us. So this is in the middle of the section that we were in. I want to start with how Jesus loves us and then look at how we respond to him. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Oh, I just, isn't that just such a beautiful picture? Christ loves us so much that he gave himself for us so that he could give us his righteousness so that we could be blameless. We could be radiant, without blemish, without wrinkle. We could be holy. So immediately, the picture that this paints is the picture of the cross. If we want to understand how Christ loves us Look at the cross. And, and three words I just want to emphasize about the love of Christ that we see in the cross. First, is that it's sacrificial. The love of Christ is sacrificial. He literally died for you. Because 
you were caught up in sin and death with a punishment that you could not pay for yourself. And so Jesus died for you. He sacrificed himself for you to have a relationship with you. Second, his love is unconditional. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our sin, at my rock bottom, Jesus loved me there. He also loves me enough not to keep me there, but to help bring me into fullness of the man of God that he's created me to be. But God loves me at my worst. It is unconditional. There is no condition of what you have to work to in order to get to the point where now you can be saved, where now you can be in a relationship with Jesus. You don't have to clean yourself up first. Trust in the cleansing water through the word that Jesus brings. Finally, servant-hearted. The humility that Jesus took to go from his throne room in heaven to be born, to live a life, to die for us, it shows his servant-hearted love. And I could stop there, but I'm not because the passage keeps going. The passage keeps going in verse 28. It says, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now, we could really dive deep into this idea that the church is the body of Christ, and we will later on in this series, um, Pictures of the Church. So I'm going to kind of set that aside, but I want to look at one part of this where it says, speaking to husbands, think about, husbands, how you love and care for yourself. If you're hungry, you eat. If you get a cut, you clean it out, you put a bandage on it. If you're tired, you rest. Like, you care for your body. That's how you love your wife. That's what you do. You love your wife by caring for her, protecting and providing and caring for her. Because that's how Christ loves the church. Jesus loves us like we're his body. He protects and provides and cares for and loves us like he loves himself. Isn't that beautiful? It's the love that Christ has for us. If we just sit for a moment and think about it, it should blow our minds that the God of all creation knows you and loves you like that. Now, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about how Christ loves us, but I want to keep moving and go back to verse 22 and look at how the church, how we as believers respond to and how we love Jesus. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their own husbands in everything. So as we go through this passage, there's a couple of words that we can pull out, but really there's one main point. As the church, we are called to love Jesus through submission. Verse 33 also uses the word respect. And so the church loves through submission and respect. But I want, to, I want to focus in on the submission part. As the church, how do we love through submission? So first, a definition of submission, biblical submission. It's the act of voluntarily humbling or yielding yourself 
to the leadership or authority of another. In our culture, there's a lot of people that want to use submission and somehow turn it into some bad word, that it's something that shouldn't be pursued, but they got it backwards. Uh, If we understand from the Bible what submission is all about, we understand that submission is not something that is saying that you are lesser or have a low value. It has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with order. Think about this. Jesus and God the Father are of equal value, and yet Jesus submits to the will of the Father. So if submission was about value, then we wouldn't see that. Submission's about order, that there is a leader, and Jesus is our authority. He is our leader. He's the Lord of our life. And so out of that, we voluntarily set aside our desires and where I want to go. If I want to go this way and Jesus wants to go this way, then I go this way. I submit, I yield, even though I might want to go, I yield to where he calls me to go. As a believer, my top priority must be to follow wherever Jesus leads. That's what submission means. If you want a really blunt statement from Jesus, look at John 14, 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. Super simple. I love that. I love when it's just straight out there. If you love me, obey. Follow what I say. Because here's the thing. Love is active. You can see love. Love has actions. It's not just a feeling, and it's not just a thought. Love is active. Think about it this way. If, with my wife, if every day I told her, Amy, I love you. I love you. I love you. But that was the only thing I ever told her that day. And after I said, I love you, I walked out, and I did whatever I wanted, and I never took her on a date, and I never got to know her better. I never spent any time with her. I never invested in her. I I never did anything with her. Do I love her? Am I showing her love? I said I love her. I think I love her. I feel like I love her. Love has action. Love will be seen. Yes, you can love with your words, and yes, you can feel love, but it doesn't stop there. Love is seen in action. Look at how Jesus loved us. He died on the cross. Love is active. And so... Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to follow my commands. Those who love me will follow me. It's a pretty simple equation. And so here's the question is, do you live like you're married to Christ? Does your life look like this beautiful love marriage relationship with Jesus where every day, You're submitting to him, trying to follow him as close as you can. When your heart starts to wander, to repent and turn back to him and come back into that love relationship, to spend time with him, to worship him, do you look like the bride of Christ? Does your life spell that out? If you were to open up your calendar or open up your checkbook or open up whatever it is that you use on your phone to keep track of your life, does that show the world, that Jesus is your top priority and that what, where he leads, you go. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. 
I want to end this morning with one more thought about this idea of being in this relationship with Christ. And that's the reality that right now we're in the midst of the betrothal period, which in our culture, we don't use this word and we don't do this. Um, So I want to explain betrothal to you a little bit um, if you've never heard it before. Uh, It's kind of like engagement. It's the season right before marriage. However, it's much more serious. It's legally binding. You are te- you're technically and legally connected. The two of you are, in a sense, married, but you haven't had your wedding ceremony yet. That's the betrothal period. If you want an example of betrothal, think of Joseph and Mary. When um, Mary and Joseph, before they're married, Mary's pregnant. Joseph finds out it's not his kid, so he decides, I'm going to divorce her quietly. The reason why he needs to do a divorce is because they have already legally come together. Now, obviously, we know the story. They don't get divorced in Holy Spirit. Anyway, okay, so that's the story. That's a little bit of betrothal. But the point is this, that in that culture, two families would come together, and you'd have the bride and the groom, and they would agree that they are going to be married. And then the groom would say, all right, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for us. And so he would go back to his father's home, and usually it would be in the father's home. You would either build a room onto the father's house or on the property somewhere. That would be your inheritance, and so you would build on that property. And then, at some point, the husband, the groom, would come back for the wife. So the bride would say, when are you going to return? And the groom would say, I don't know, only my father knows, because the father would be the one who gives him the permission to go back after he's built it and whatever. Okay, now you can go and get your bride. So once the father gives permission, the groom with his groomsmen, they go. And this could be at any point. It could be the middle of the day, middle of the night. doesn't matter. They're just going to, as soon as they get permission, he goes. And he goes back, and he's going to get his wife, and he's going to bring her, and they're going to celebrate their wedding together. And they know how to party. They do, like, week-long-plus parties to celebrate this wedding ceremony, this festival. It's a huge, awesome, exciting thing. So that's this betrothal period, is this time between when they've said, we are in, we are connected, we are fully together, and the wedding ceremony. And that's where we are as the church right now. We're in the middle of this period where you've, if you've said, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life, then you are covenanted in with Jesus. But we're still waiting for the day when Jesus comes back for us and takes us to be with him. John 14, 1 through 4 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Jesus is using marriage betrothal imagery here. He's saying, I'm going away, but don't, don't lose heart. I'm going to come back. The day and the hour, only the Father knows, but I am coming back to take you to be with me so that we can be together for eternity. And there is going to be a wedding feast, and it is going to be awesome. And we, as the church, should be looking forward to that day. We should be excited for the day when our bridegroom returns for us. But there's two things during the betrothal period that you would expect of any bride 
during this time. And this is what I think we should do during our betrothal period. And that is, first, to stay pure. That as a bride, she has committed herself to that groom. He's gone off, and she's, during that time, to wait and to be pure, to not go with any other, but to stay and to wait for him. Second, is to prepare and to be ready for his return. There's a lot of parables to talk about, like, have the, have the lamp with oil in the wicks, that you're ready. If he comes in the middle of the night, that you're ready. Like, be ready. Be prepared. Because your wedding day might be tonight. It might be tomorrow. Are you ready for Jesus to come back and to be with him? Are you ready for that day? So that's what I believe is a part of our call as the church, as the bride of Christ. Jesus has washed us clean by the water with his word. So let's do everything in our power to stay pure. And let's spend all the time that we have to make sure that we are putting everything into being ready for the return of Christ. So I want to end with this. Are you living like you're the bride of Christ? I know we've done a lot of discussion questions where we have five or six questions. I just wanted to put up one tonight, this morning. That today you would be considering and thinking and praying through, are, are you living like this is true of you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just pray for everyone in this room right now that as we hear from your word, I pray that you would convict our hearts where we have been unfaithful. God, none of us are perfect, so help us to recognize the ways that we've gone astray. Help us to repent and instead to to run back to you. God, I pray that we would be a people who love you and that we show that love in action every day. Help us as your bride to be faithful to you, to stay pure, and to be ready for your return. And Lord, may that be soon. We love you. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen.